Welcome to the Journey of an Aesthete podcast, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. Amanda Reyes? That's me. That's the correct, correct pronunciation of your name. That is correct. I was, con- correct. I was concerned about correct. that. I was very concerned. I want to pronounce this woman's name correctly. <laughs> um, I am, you know, I can't tell you how excited I, ha- I am to have Amanda Reyes on my podcast for more than one reason. There's like a hundred reasons. Um, you were one of the first people on my dream list. I had a list of dream guests. Huh. And you were one of the first people on there because I've been listening to your podcast for some time now. Okay. And I, I had some very high, what you would call highbrow people on my list. Like, you know, oh, I don't know, like um, uh, Fred Wiseman, the documentary filmmaker and people like that. But you know what I mean? But then I, but I love uh, the way you talk about popular culture and popular media with, with ex- just extraordinary intelligence mm-hmm. and, and comprehensiveness and understanding um, of, of this kind of material. And I thought I got to, you know, got to have you on the show to talk about your love for, uh, 60s and 70s visual culture and film and television. Um, and uh, anything else you want to talk about, if anything else comes up, you know, um, that's fine too. Great. So, so, okay. wel- so welcome to Journey of Anesthete. Thank you. I'm excited. Um, I want to, usually what I do is I start off with a linear chronology and a linear, in a linear chronology, Non-linear things will start to happen. Things will pop up, you know, when you're talking about sure. bio and, and all that. But I wanted to mention while we're here about um, Mr. Goldberg, Leonard Goldberg. Oh, and, sure. And your thoughts about, about his passing. Um, well, you know, it's kind of like it's a lot of things. So Leonard Goldberg is, of course, was a forerunner and a pioneer in TV movies. And of course his TV productions a lot that he did with Aaron Spelling. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was really adept at what he did and wonderful. And he created a lot of great film and television, but it's also always kind of indicative of like when you are somebody who's into nostalgia, such as I am, um, it feels like you're always saying goodbye to somebody. Uh, And so, You know, there's always a list, and I always feel bad because sometimes I write big, long things about people, mm. and sometimes just life gets in the way, yeah. and you can't give them the proper credit that they deserve, yeah. but it feels like every day there's just some new loss, yeah. and that's yeah, it, the it hardest does seem, part it does seem that, that way. It's crazy, because we're just getting over Valley Harper, right? That was just a bear, you know, bear, what, two weeks, or... Yeah, and then, like, Robert Forrester died. Like, everybody I ever loved just freaking died. And it was like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, can I just get a year of, like, not having to deal with this? But Valerie Harper, you know, was my idol. And if you've ever followed my social media, you would have seen how much I adore her. Yeah, absolutely. Valerie Harper was was a genius. Um, I actually wanted to ask you your feelings about her musical performances, like variety show stuff, because that stuff's fantastic, you know. 
Like it's really good. Serious. I'm not as familiar with it yeah. as I should be, but I did see something she did, interestingly enough. It's on YouTube with B. Arthur yeah. and maybe Lucille Ball. Yep. And um, I was like, wow, that blew my mind. Yeah, it's brilliant. Well, I sort of see Valerie Harper. Would you say that Valerie Harper is an example of a performer who came from an era in which, um, you know, they had the almost like a traditional classical Hollywood about triple threat, that you had to act and dance and sing, right? Would, would you say that that's kind of a holdover from that that era in terms of skill uh, She set? would appear to be because she was a trained dancer um, yeah. at a very young age, right? There's a really beautiful photo of her dancing at age 18 in New York City out in the streets that um, kind of got passed around when she turned 80, right before she passed away. That's really beautiful. Um, yeah, there's a um, there's something about, I think, like Barbara Eaton, uh-huh. um, those kind of women um, that I admire so much that have so much talent and sometimes get sort of pigeonholed as being known for one thing. Barbara Eaton in particular uh-huh. um, is a prime example of a woman who can pretty much do anything. Yeah. And we all know her as Jeannie, right? And her whole yeah. life has been lived as Jeannie. But she did a lot of things outside of that, including a lot of her own work on variety shows that was fantastic. Yep. And drama performances. She did a lot of TV movies, yep. which is where I came to really love her as an actress. Yep. I mean, she's an amazing actress and great at melodrama. And great, yes. and great, and but she's never thought of that. You're right. She's pigeonholed as the comic actress, um, which is really kind of kind of sad in a way, because well, of her, because her range is so much beyond, so far beyond that. That's yeah. kind of where the TV movie comes in for me in a lot yeah. of ways because um, you're probably looking at my avatar right now and you're seeing Robert Reed. Yeah. And so Robert Reed is like my favorite actor of all yeah, time, and and he's one of those people that went to the TV movie so that he could be something else besides Mr. Brady. Andy Griffith is a great example. Barbara Eden, of course, Riley Harper. Elizabeth Montgomery, probably the best example of that. And so, like, the TV movie provided um, a gateway, not just for me, into all kinds of genres, like horror in particular. It's how I got into horror films. But also for the actors themselves, and maybe filmmakers, I'm not so sure, but maybe some episodic filmmakers enjoyed making TV movies. That I don't know as much about. But it kind of allowed them to do something different and for us to look at them through a different lens. And that's so important um, because Robert Reed was a tremendous actor. And if you go through his filmography, uh, yeah, which is mostly made for television stuff. Like if you look at um, Haunts of the Very Rich, he has this amazing monologue that I use in my lectures because it's such a perfect example of the type of material that actors could find on the small screen in the TV movie format that would allow us as fans of their sitcom characters in particular to Mm. say, oh my God, that person is such a great actor, you know? Well, that reminds me, I just recently watched a made-for-TV movie with Robert Reed from 80 or 81, and I can't think of the title. Maybe you could help. He plays a more more, dubious sort of character in it. What the heck is that movie? Oh, he's always playing dubious characters. He was famous for that. For that, um, I don't know about 1980. That's really interesting. He did Secret Night Caller, which came out in 75, no, it's which is that. where he's an obscene yeah. phone caller. Um, which is yes! Thank you. Yeah. That is the film. Yeah, that is that's the his film. best performance. Yeah, that's an extraordinary performance. I mean, that actually makes me think of another favorite of mine, Dennis Weaver. There's a similarity. Oh, yeah. Isn't Dennis Weaver remarkable? Um, yes. Yeah, it just, um, of course, they're different men and different types of actors, but they're, I think when, I'm, when I think of them as similar... I think I'm talking about their acting chops, you know, just what they bring to a role. Oh, absolutely, um, yeah. So I wanted to mention a little bit more about you, Amanda Reyes, because you've been, you're in podcasting. 
Yes. And you have a great show called Made for TV oh. Mayhem that I want to recommend to everybody listen to it. It's a great show. Thank and you, you. Have, you have pals on the show, Dan, and a couple other people come on. And you guys really get into the weeds on these films. You know, like when you're... I was re-listening to uh, your podcast on... Uh, not just Zuma Beach with Suzanne Summers, but um, sort of the high school, school trip. Sort of yeah. like early 80s, almost like late 70s, early 80s school trip movie. Uh, and then the, the one, the Ron Howard about the rock band. Oh, yeah, Cotton Candy. Cotton Candy. And I really enjoyed this podcast because it made me realize, listening to it, that you're an archivist. I'm, I'm obsessed with trying to get people to see the greatness of the 70s in cinema and television. And I'm actually writing a book on this. I have a whole theory that I won't, I won't bore you with about kind of the, the production practices of that time mm. and how unique they were and how things were shot and location shooting and a whole... can go down that oh. rabbit hole. But, but, um, but you know about all this stuff and you, and you express it so eloquently. And you've also done some commentary tracks. Yes. And I have to say I'm remiss. I have not listened to all of these. So I have to go and listen to your commentary track on the Stockard Channing picture, Joan Rivers' picture. Which, or The Girl Most Likely To. The Girl Most yeah. Likely To. So I want to listen yeah. to that. I did that with Kayla Janice. And Kayla Janice um, is an amazing kind of jack-of-all-trades who's also really into sort of um, she loves every all film. She just is always swept away by film in general. But she wrote a book called House of Psychotic Women, which is sort of a biography told through films. And she's and it's about like sort of women's response to horror and what it means to us. And that's kind of this new field for some reason. All of a sudden, we're realizing women love horror, even mm-hmm. though it's been like this for decades. And um, and so she was a perfect, I think, co-host. I don't know what you call that co-commentary partner yeah. um, for me because. Um, she brings so much to the table too. And I was really proud of that track in particular because she just really, really knows her stuff. And um, we got to talk a lot about second wave feminism and about um, Joan Rivers in particular, um, who really didn't do a lot in terms of writing these types of films. She had a rabbit test, right? Uh-huh. And this, and, um, but this yeah. movie is such a personal sort of letter to herself. I don't even want to say love letter because it's a very dark look at how she sees mm. herself, but, but a very personal story and it was great to have somebody who's so in touch with horror and with Mm -hmm. finding your own personal story in those tales to come onto the commentary so that one worked out really well for me i mean that's beautiful i mean of course i want to listen to your commentary truck on wes craven's last house on the left oh yeah (laughs) which which i i do believe is a masterpiece alongside alongside the shining it's just a wes craven was really deep filmmaker a lot of people you know this but a lot of people tend to write him off too easily. He was very, you know, English teacher, English major, and very, his work is really about family and about all kinds of, um, yes, all kinds yes. of, uh, and I'm sure you get into that. So I have to listen to that, that track. Um, but let's backtrack a little bit to your uh, beginnings. I guess when you became aware of television, made the made for TV movie and its importance, like artistically or just for pleasure, does that go back um, to growing up and watching them as a, as a kid or, or two? Yeah, that was a childhood thing. Like, we had, um, wherever I lived, I lived in a couple of different places growing up. The um, I was only had the three major networks and another channel. And the other channel used to have really good afternoon programming on the weekends and evening programming. And they showed a lot of TV movies. They showed movies in general, but the, there was a lot of TV movies. Whoever the programmers were just picked up a lot of that stuff. And so my earliest... Um, memories of watching TV movies comes from when I was even like four years old and I either saw Gargoyles or Don't Be Afraid of the Dark Uh first 
And I don't know which one, but those came at the same time. And I was fascinated by gargoyles. I loved them. I wanted to hang out with them. I was terrified of the creatures in Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. And mm-hmm. so I got these different responses. And through the years, of course, I just saw a lot of TV movies. Horror in particular always caught me. Trilogy of Terror was one. Mm-hmm. I saw at a very young age, very influential. And um, when I got older, I mean, they were always there. And TV movies were always consistently good. They just kind of changed. By, they're almost like each decade is is almost like a different what do you call that? There's a different aesthetic That's to right. every decade of the That's TV right. movie. But the 70s and the 90s in particular are very strong aesthetically. Um, right. They both stand out in different ways. And so I was always watching them. Um, and and um, in the 90s, you know, Lifetime uh, had a lot of great yeah. original films and stuff like that. And then uh, I guess in the early 2000s, um, I had kind of hit a slump in my life. Uh, and I talked about this before, but my parents died back to back and oh. it was, it was pretty upsetting. And then I lost my grandfather and oh. my brother-in-law within the next 18 months. And I was in a pretty dark place. And so my husband asked or suggested, and then maybe I started a blog on TV movies because I love them so much. Mm. And I'd actually written a little bit about them before for a fanzine called Debaser. And so I was, um, which I'm telling this sort of out of order, but it sort of re-sparked my interest. And so the blog sounded really enticing and nobody had really done it yet. And so um, I just started watching TV movies again, but like in huge amounts of numbers. Like I was just starting, I began to acquiring them like mad and like watching what I could and YouTube hadn't really come into play yet and uh, or any of the streaming. So it was a lot of bootlegs. And, um, and I was just filling my brain up with all these movies, some of which I had seen growing up and some of which were completely new to me. Uh-huh. And it became sort of an obsession. And people started coming to my blog, not in huge numbers. I've never had like a giant audience, but um, they come to me and, and they email me from all over the world. At first, I was getting emails from a guy in Spain um, who had seen them as well. He, wherever he grew up, they showed a lot of American TV movies and he uh-huh. loved them. And so people just started ask me questions, where can I get these movies? Do you remember this movie? Oh my God, I can't believe you wrote about this. I saw this when I was six, or this is a movie I never forgot. And, um, and it, it was feeding, I guess, a need in people who had these memories, Uh um, in their, in their mind and they wanted to share. And I kept trying different forms of community. It was kind of a little before the web 2.0. So I, uh, eventually I started a Facebook page and a Twitter and people came to that. And, um, this publisher reached out to me because he was making a book on TV movies in England yeah. and he had been, um, he had heard of my name through a couple of different of the writers that he had crawled into the project. And so he asked if I would write some reviews for him and we started talking and I just turned out to know a little bit more than anybody else involved in the project. So <laughs> doesn't surprise um, me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah so, exactly. so eventually he was like, you know, I have all these, it's a very small publisher, and he's like, you know, I have all these books on my plate, and I can't give as much attention to this book as I would like. Um, would you like to become the editor of this TV movie book? So then I took over um, partway into the project, and then I sort of curated it to what we have at the end. So my book is called Are You in the House Alone? A TV Movie Compendium. 1964 to 1999 and it came out in 2017 through head press and so some of the reviews had already existed some of the essays were already there but um we were able to put them together in a way that i think worked uh better and uh, had a a stronger voice to it um where it feels like it's i love that book i love that book and that that book is on my bedside in fact i was going of course going through and getting ready for the show um because it's fairly comprehensive i mean you have a you know I don't know, you know, the t- amount of titles is staggering. 
Yeah, it's a little over 200 something titles. And there are stuff that was left out. And my big fear was the thing about the internet is that no matter what you do, it's never good enough. And so like, if you make a list of your favorite movies, you've always, you've always forgotten a movie. Somebody tells you, right. And so like, there's a couple of movies that aren't in the book that just kind of got looked over or whatever. And when I, when I finished the book and I turned it in, I was like, Oh my God, why is a vampire in there? Or why didn't I? throw in Brian's song, even though it's not really a genre film, blah, blah, blah. And nobody really said anything about it. They seemed to just enjoy that there were so many titles and a lot of them were obscure enough that uh, cinephiles really liked it because it became like a guide Mm -hmm. of a lot of lost films for them. And so it turned out that the selection, even though I think there's a couple titles I kind of wish ultimately had been in there, I think Mm -hmm. we ended up with enough interesting titles that people were pretty satisfied with it. And that made me really happy. Yeah, well, there's, a, there's, a, there's of course, a difference between pursuing your, your deepest passions or obsessions, which may be idiosyncratic, but nevertheless objectively valid, and sort right. of more impersonal, canonical kind of titles, right? Yeah. And there is a difference. So Brian Song could be both. You can love Brian Song, but Brian Song is much more of a, you know, canonical, you know, this is an important TV movie in the history of American television. Um, so that's, that's distinct from whether it's your fa- one's favorite movie. I mean, a, a good example of that is uh, John Lewin Mox- Moxley, who you've Ugh. written about, who is one of the greatest directors of the 20th century. I mean, I, yes. I, I would put him in the same, well, I, yeah. But my favorite movie of his is Intimate Strangers. Ooh, you know, that's one I haven't seen. I know, that's why I mentioned it. It's one you haven't seen. <laughs> and my dream project is to have you and I do a podcast show on that film. Oh, great, yeah. I would love to do that because I've watched that film many times. I've written long essays on it oh. with, uh, with Dennis Weaver and Sally Struthers, T- Tyne Daly, Larry Hagman. Um, it's a ma- remarkable film. Uh, the Intimate Strangers, 1977. So that's like my favorite John Lewin Moxie film, even more than the Night Stalker things, as much as I like the Night Stalker, and even more than... than um, well, he made so many films, didn't he? He did. You know, it's funny because I really like The Night Stalker too, but it's not my favorite. And yeah. I know it's the one that everybody thinks of when they think of him, but he did so many movies. And so, like, I did the commentary for Nightmare in Badham County mm. well, through Keener Lorber this year, which is a movie he made. And that's another that's favorite. A, yeah. yeah, that's an amazing film. Amazing. And because it's mimicking the grindhouse sort of women in prison genre pretty well, considering it's mm-hmm. a TV movie. It's very gritty and grimy, but yeah. it's also dealing with a lot of female-centric issues uh-huh. in a way that the women in prison films didn't, even though they had large women uh, casts. And, like, it it does these things, and it, it also, like, breaks your heart at the end. It's got this really amazing, tragic ending. And he, that movie... When I was doing the research for that, yeah. I, I always liked the movie. I didn't see it till actually just a few years ago. Somebody recommended it to me on my Facebook page, and I saw it. And um, I, it wasn't until I did the commentary that I really came to appreciate just how well made that movie is. And what I mean, I've always loved him as a director, but like that he could do that, and the same year do Spanish Up on Interstate Five, which in and of itself is another fantastic movie, right? That it takes a huge Spanish Up on Interstate Five is like pure cinema. Yeah, right? like the I way mean, he interweaves all of those stories, stories to yeah. its endpoint and has that amazing, those car crashes are it's, amazing. It's and remarkable. Like, it's yeah. everything. And he did those in the same year, and he probably had two months to do each of them and somehow made these fantastic, unforgettable films. I mean, he's just, he's just uh, the 
he's the king of it. I don't know what yeah. else to call him. He is the guy. The, yeah, it's the, remarkable. I mean, but those both both those titles that requires real discipline to sort of construct those set pieces and. I don't know. I think it's really like I have a list of directors here, and I run by you. You know all these directors, but I, I, you know, I can't come up with like Lamont Johnson, right? Oh yeah. Uh, whatever comes Where's to mind. Charlie. Yeah, or or um, uh, yeah, that's right. Or um, the well, Lamont Johnson's a whole field unto himself. Uh, the the last American hero, right? With Jeff Bridges and uh, Robert Day, right? He, yes, I always get Robert Day mixed up with. Um... Oh my gosh, and David Green, not their films so much, like I know mm-hmm. who they are, but like in my mind I keep thinking like Dave, one of them directed Murder by Natural Causes, and I can never remember which one it is, um, and you know what I mean, and right. I don't know why that is, but for some reason um, the two of them, I think they might have made the same types of thrillers, so yeah, they, they sometimes did. get conflated in my head. And then there's John Cordy. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, William Graham. Yes. Yep. So you're saying all these names, and I can't think of their titles. Like I can think of like um, Jerry Jameson. Um, That's right. David Lowell Rich did Saints School for Girls, I think. Mm-hmm. And he, he was one of those guys. I think he might have done Horror at Thirty Seven Thousand Feet, or is that? Oh my gosh, Robert Michael Lewis is another one. Yeah. I've got all these names in my head, and, and I'm he, thinking, what did they J- do? Jerry Thorpe, uh, William Weird. William oh, Wyatt. he's great. Yeah, yeah he he, great. he um he and um. Uh, uh, David Levinson did like some of my favorite TV movies, right? This House Possessed, right? Right. Paul Wenkos. Well, Paul Wenkos is a great filmmaker, yeah. Yeah. Randall Kleiser, who worked equally well in both mm. theater and, and um, TV. Yeah. He did Boy in the Plastic Bubble, right? Yes. Uh, Lou Antonio, right? That's right. Yeah. But when you look at this list of directors, like I'm looking at this, these are hardworking filmmakers having to having to make um, a pretty fast result, right? Having to make a fast uh, fast picture. Yeah, the uh, the production time of TV movies isn't very long. And, and so one of the things I do on my podcast is I try to go through the trade articles because um, mm-hmm. I have access to a lot of variety uh, back issues mm-hmm. and, and also newspapers. And, and I try to find production information because it's really, it doesn't exist for TV movies in general. And uh, a lot of times, though, somebody will get cast in something and it'll say, like, Kim Hunter got cast for a new ABC TV movie called Bad Ronald. And then I'll look at the date of yeah. when she was cast, where the announcement went out. And then I'll look at the date of the release of the film, like when it originally aired. And there's really very seldom over three months. There is sometimes. Yeah. Like, I just did um, a podcast episode on what we called car porn. Yeah. Where we talked about Death Car on the Freeway and um, Gladiator. And Death Car on the Freeway, they, they had almost a year, but that's because they had Hal Needham. Hal Needham and Abel Ferrara. How's that for a parent? Yeah. It's weird, right? It's but, wonderful. Um, Hal Neiman got Hal Neiman got, I think, uh, more time. First of all, because it's very intricate, the car stuff is really intense in that. But also, he's he had done Smoking the Bandit and was a, a yeah, gazillion a dollar man. profitable filmmaker, and so I think they gave him a huge pillow to make his film. But a lot of filmmakers didn't get that opportunity. So like Crowhaven Farm, I think had like a two month turnaround, mm-hmm. and a really great mo- movie called Mazes and Monsters which I'm doing this off the top of my head. I think they did that in three months. Uh That's Tom Hanks. Um, Early 80s, really good movie. And it's uh, mind-boggling for me to think about three months. That's that's production and post-production. You know what I mean? Like, that blows my mind. Well, early 80s TV filmmaking is its own own rich treasure chest. Oh, yeah. Like, make, make, make me an offer comes to mind. 
Or I don't know if I've seen that. It's like a real estate comedy about a woman entering the world of cutthroat world of real estate. Or or um, the one about the shopping mall in Texas from 79 with Susan St. James. Some very similar... Oh. Quasi, you don't know what that one, the quasi, sort of quasi, the girls on the in the office. That's right, the girls in the office. Oh, you know, I haven't seen that either. Oh, I've wow. always wanted to. Yeah, so those, but those are kind of late 70s, early 80s. So early 80s is its own, its own universe in a way. Just like the 90s is its own universe with like something about Amelia or... Um, oh, so good, yeah. Is, it's Ted that Dan- might be 80s. That might actually have come out in the 80s. That's, yeah, that's the Ted Danson. Yeah. I was just thinking about that movie because... It was so groundbreaking, and there's never really been another movie like that um, on TV. There's been movies that have approached some pretty harrowing topics, of course, like The Burning Bed and stuff, but there's yeah. never really been a movie quite like something about Amelia where I think it doesn't vilify Ted Danson, even though it's a deplorable thing he's doing. Yeah. I think it does its best to sort of approach the topic in a very objective manner and does a pretty good job of it. Well, that, that gets at the heart of what I think matters about these TV movies. There's a real integrity. It's interesting. Here we are yeah. in network television, and yet some of the some of the most groundbreaking, fearless filmmaking. You, you watch a movie like Little Ladies of the Night or Hustling. Yeah, well, movies, Hustling's movies, so good, yeah. Movies, Hustling is fearless. I mean, the, the, and also there's no side characters. Like a character actor that's only in a few scenes is given all the kind of the attention and care as mm-hmm. the lead character. I mean, there's all these real virtues of these films, not to mention all the great location shooting and, you know, it's a real time capsule of the, of the eras. And the, yeah, and it definitely movie, is. Yeah. The movie I'm thinking of is, um, you talk about kind of fearless, uh, and I'll tell you why, it's called Shattered Innocence. Mm. And you know what I'm talking about? It's the, tree, oh, yeah. it's the biopic of Shauna Grant, who was an adult film actress who committed suicide at 21, yep. and it's her story from like age 18 to 21. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's so compelling about that film is that it doesn't point fingers at the porn industry. Mm-hmm. It actually kind of makes her like um, autonomous and somebody who makes her own decisions, and they led to a horrible conclusion. Mm-hmm. But but it's not really blaming the industry. And when that movie came out, her parents were horrified, huh. and um, they didn't want anybody to see the film because of it. And they said that they sold the rights to her story to whoever made the film because um, they needed money for a gravestone. But at the same time, the movie, I think, accurately probably depicts things in, you know, of course, there's no nudity or anything like that because it's a TV movie. But I think it kind of it's it's telling a very real story in a very real way. And and I think the parents aren't necessarily painted in the best light. And that's probably where that came from. And that's unfortunate. But it's also, like you say, I think in a way it's a piece of fearless filmmaking because it's so easy to like lay the blame onto the porn industry like we so often do, you know? Well, it makes me think of this season's deuce, the last season of the deuce, where... Have you watched that? No, I haven't. Yeah, they they have a storyline similar to that. There's a character who... Hmm. who, commits suicide who's in that industry and clearly it's that was the pattern that was the template for that character that they that david simon oh, and these guys wrote but the treatment couldn't be more different than shattered innocence and it's hard to put it's just a difference i think it's just the difference of how films are made now and what this what the um assumptions are sensibility is i mean i've tried to capture it in prose it's kind of hard to hard to write about but kind of what I have written down here, and it's in my book, is that in earlier, some of these, a lot of these made for TV movies, there's an attempt, there's an interest in like human emotion and the authenticity of human emotion. Do you know what I mean? For its, yes. own, oh, for yeah. its own sake. 
And I think, yes. I, think, I think the change later is that it becomes much more plot-oriented and most more about narrative or making a point or scoring, you know, it, it's kind of, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, you watch Death of Richie. Um, yeah, Death of Richie is an anti-drug movie, I guess it is. Mm-hmm. But Death of Richie is also a, a portrait of this family and Ben Gazzara and, um, and uh, you know, and it's almost like that takes priority as, the, as character's destiny. The character takes the priority over trying to push home a certain message or trying to move the plot forward. I don't know if you think that that's, that is a yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because that also kind of goes against the grain of like what the TV movie was trying to do. So there's a book by a woman named Elaine Rapping called, I think it's called Movies of the Week. I love that book. Yeah, it's a great book. book. And she talks a lot about how TV movies, well, TV movies have always marketed themselves towards women aged 18 to 49 because women back when the TV movie first came to be were, you know, housewives generally and were the biggest consumer in the household. Mm-hmm. So advertisers were like, we want our products shown on the types of films that women are going to be watching. So that's why you see a lot of domestic stuff happening mm-hmm. in the TV movie. So what's interesting is Elaine Rapping has this great quote that I use all the time um, that basically states that uh, all TV movies, and she says all, and she's not right about that, but she is right that a lot of them do it. The whole point is, is that the family is put in some kind of peril, but they're made stronger by the end. Mm-hmm. And the thing about the death of Richie is that you could question whether but, or not it's doing that. So it's subverting yeah. that trope, I think, yeah. because I don't, I wouldn't say the family is made better, but it was something that it's also based on a true story. But I mean, mm-hmm. this was something that had to happen. But it is, it is about dealing with the problems in the space of the house, rather than the fact that he's like this drug addict, and, and to yeah. a degree. I guess Go Ask Alice is doing that as well because it's dealing with how her family is sort of reacting in a way or not reacting to her drug addiction through parts of it, not all of it. But it subverts it in in a lot of ways too. Of course, that's a propaganda film completely. It is. But but strangely enough, because it's made by John Cordy, who comes from kind of a pretty highbrow experimental film background. So he's he's shooting... Uh, the, but it looks like an experimental film because, like it, um, it does. I don't know if you've seen it or I, how recently yeah, I've seen it. I've but seen it, yeah, John Corey. Yeah, it, it does. It, it's edited really weird. So, like, mm-hmm. it's like, um, like there's a scene in particular we talked about on the podcast where, like, she's just somewhere and then she wakes up like in a park, and we don't know what happened to yeah. her for like three days, and mm-hmm. it's kind of jarring because all of a sudden she's just somewhere else in the film, and it's almost like there's no narrative, and but it's like she, we're following her drug addiction problem so when she can't remember being somewhere for three days we're not going to see it right because that's what happens she just wakes up without her shoes on in a park three days later and the whole film is shot like that like so so like it just goes back and forth in this really clippy weird sort of editing technique that's really fascinating and it also plays with um visuals Uh like there's a scene where her and her girlfriend walk in on uh, they're two boyfriends, but it looks like the two boyfriends might be having sex together. But then you're not positive. You can't really tell what you've seen. Mm-hmm. And so, and there's no, they don't ever refer to it again. Yeah. And so like the, the whole film is done. So it's interesting. I didn't know that about John Cordy's like experimental background, but it feels like for TV in particular, it feels kind of like an experimental film in and of itself. Well, I should qualify that term. He, he always made narrative films. They weren't so they weren't non-narrative experimental films, but they were films like with, for example, with voiceover narration okay. and, and Burgess Meredith narr- like Funny Man is one of them, and, and the Crazy Quilt. And they were made in the middle '60s, and they have a very almost a kind of John Cassavetian quality to them in black mm. and white. 
But then again, that's not surprising since a lot of Mayfi TV movies sometimes feel like Cassavetti's movies, actually, <laughs> in point of fact. But that's a whole other discussion. I wanted to ask you about a movie in particular that I have never seen. And I want to know how I get a copy of it. And that's Young Love, First Love with Timothy Hunt and Valerie Bertinelli. Um, well, I have a copy of it. You do? Um, so, but it's on VHS. Wow. Yeah, I got it. I got it off eBay, I think. Not eBay. Yeah, I might have bought it off eBay or Amazon um, because it did actually have a home video release. And so it's legitimately available on VHS. Okay. But, but you have to buy it through, you know, used, obviously. Yeah. But it's never had another. It's one of, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because, like, the thing about TV movies is that so many of them don't have a legitimate home video release. And, like, it's impossible to access them legally, you know? And it's frustrating because I wish that there were more available to buy, like the, like what uh, Kino Lorber and Shout Factory are doing with their titles. Mm-hmm. Um it would be really nice to see more of that because I hate acquiring films illegally. I would rather do it and support the filmmakers and the studios if I could and distributors and all that stuff. Well, what do you think it is that this kind of, um, these kind of films are kind of dismissed? I mean, there's, I guess some obvious reasons, but I mean, I I sort of, that, that it seems weird to me. Young Love, First Love is kind of a movie I'd love to see. I think a lot of people would want to see it and I think it has value. I imagine it's it a really good movie, right? I mean, it's it's it's, it's great. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And um, you know, I'm kind of getting on a Bella Bernelli kick because I just saw uh, the Seduction of Gina, where she plays a woman who gets addicted to gambling. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it showed up on Amazon Prime, and I've been looking for that movie forever, and I couldn't believe it. But um, and she's her TV movie work, and I haven't seen a ton of it yet. Is really good. But Young Love, First Love um, is very good. It was surprisingly good um, because I think it goes in different places than you're kind of expecting it to. Um, that's the thing about the TV movie. I think people think TV movies work a certain way and they do. If you look at Elaine rapping and how she lays out the structure of a TV mm-hmm. movie, they generally all follow that structure. They're about putting, um, a family in some sort of state of peril, yeah. whether it be emotional or otherwise, and then having the family come out stronger in the end. That is true. But what it does inside that structure, uh, can be unique and different. And, and when you say it has value, of course it has value because it's intended to reflect our very home. So, mm-hmm. Like, um, well, you know, we, we, the, 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 oh, out, I'm sorry that, well, the outside structure, see, that's the thing I'm interested in least actually. That's just like just the narration. I, yeah, I, I'm always interested in style. And so to me, the style of, so to me, it's all about style, right? So what goes on inside these films is fantastic. So that, you know, you mentioned a film about, um, Valley Brunelli plays somebody who gets addicted to gambling. That makes me think of winner take all or Shirley Jones. You oh know? yes. Yeah, I mean these are the, those films really touch us because of the style, the way that they're made, the way they're acted, and the way they're um, the style is totally unique. But go ahead, I'm spoken t- too long. Well, well just it's interesting you say that because my background is in cultural theory, mm-hmm. and I kind of think that they both are important. Um, the outside structure, what it happens on the inside, because the thing is, is that TV movies obviously. Uh, went into millions of homes. Way more people saw TV movies on any given night than they would see in the theater, you know, on that night. And so TV movies, I can't even... Uh, what's the word I want to use? I can't underline the importance of, of the how they reach the masses enough. And mm-hmm. so it was important 
for these TV movies to be attractive to all of these different types of people. So they have to be made in a certain way so that they reach the largest number of people. And culturally, that's fascinating to me because these movies are intended to speak to things that are happening to us. And one of the things that makes the TV movie so unique is because it has such a short production schedule, um, they can hit on any kind of hot topic at any time way quicker than a theatrical could because they're not taking the same amount of time to make the film. So, like, if something happens that's interesting in the headlines, mm-hmm. they can spin it into a TV movie before the end of the year, right? right. So so it could they could hit on topics that people were talking about as they were talking about them and not talk about them in hindsight. And so they're actually critiquing sometimes and sometimes maybe overly embracing certain kinds of tropes and conventionalisms and things like that. And that, so that outline structure that Elaine Rapping talks about mm. is really interesting because she's talking about how in the seventies and eighties in particular, when, when everything was about the middle class, um, these TV movies were trying to reflect issues that happened within um, middle-class families mm-hmm. and so culturally that makes them very important and so the structure to me is fascinating and important but you're right that what the so John Lomoxie gets a movie about a family right mm-hmm. in turmoil or whatever like no place to hide maybe mm-hmm. or something and um and then he has to figure out what to do inside of it stylistically to make it appealing so like the story is laid out and it's a pretty familiar narration familiarity is important to these types mm-hmm. of films and um and but then he has to do something in there that's going to throw you off or keep you uh, going past the commercial because uh, it's a cliffhanger. It's interesting, and so and so yes, the style is as as important. But they're both speaking to two different kinds of things that are happening um, with uh, our own spectatorship. I guess is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. Well, I think the two work together in some kind of interesting symbiosis, and it sounds like you've thought a lot about that, and you've written about it. So, um, what comes to mind is the Valley Harper again, the Night Terror. Or, oh yeah, which is. I mean, that's a, that's a movie... Okay, that's a horror movie. She's being stalked by a psycho. Right? Yes. But that's... By God, that's a woman's spiritual journey in that film. That film is yes. a deep film about a woman... That's as much of a woman's spiritual journey as any feature-length, you know, two-hour movie that's ever been made. You well, know, anything with Joe Clayberg. It's, it's <laughs> oh, it's, well, yes. It's, it's, well, it's easily as good as, as Unmarried Woman or, or, or um, Luna. Yeah, yeah, sure. they're they're doing the same thing, doing but the same in thing. a different way. And yeah. and so when I was a kid, I loved Night Terror because it was scary because the guy was scary, and mm-hmm. it's got a lot of great suspense in it, and it's really well made. Um, I saw it way more than Duel when I was a kid for some reason, but like seeing it again because we did a podcast on it recently yeah. and watching it as like a piece of sort of um, a, a symbol of second wave feminism or some uh, uh, a metaphor for that. It really does speak to women trying to find their own voices in the 70s and in a really, really strong, powerful way. And I love that um, it does that. And I love that a lot of TV movies can't... We just talked about this on a podcast I haven't put out yet um, that we just recorded, that TV, a lot of TV movies can be watched as a horror or action film, but there's a lot of subtext in so many of these TV movies and it's just there if you want to see it. And once you see it, you you just have to keep looking. That's what makes them so fascinating. There's it's so exciting. much going on inside them. It's exciting. It's certainly the case in Death Car on the Freeway. If that's the film you're, yes, you're that's thinking of, which is, is is I mean, it's as conscious of that as as Night Terror. Yeah, um, which surprised me. I didn't really realize that until I read the essay in the book, not the essay, the review of it in mm-hmm. my own book. Jennifer Wallace wrote that. Yeah. I always have to call her name out because I'd written about it a little on my blog and I'd sort of started to approach it as. Um, 
talking about second wave feminism, but she said it so eloquently and it just kind of like, you know, cracked open the onion for me. And then I was able to start peeling things back myself. And, um, and it was such a gateway for me to look at that movie really as what it is. And it's such a strong statement on feminism and, and a really wonderful one too, you know, and also it's got amazing crashes in it. So it does everything. Who, who would that be? No, I said it has amazing car crashes. Oh, in it oh as well. car crashes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it can be watched, you know, on watched, many like, different levels. Yeah. So you could almost watch that movie like a Chips um, yeah. episode if you wanted to. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you would. Who wouldn't? Well, you could, but you would miss a lot of good stuff if you just watched it like Chips. But you know that. Yeah, that's funny. Um, nothing against Chips, but I like no. Chips. <laughs> but um, I want to rewind a little bit. You did. What did you do? Your academic. Uh, uh, work and what what uh, material? What did you cover and where? And oh well, happened? I went back to school in my late thirties, and um, I went to a school called Chatham, which is in Pittsburgh. It's a, it was an all girl school. It's now co-ed. I went like the last years of it being all girl, and it was a really great experience. And of course, being an all girl school, they really emphasized feminism. There, I took a lot of classes on um, also race. Um, studies, uh-huh. race and gender were my concentration. And then my minor was in art history and uh, museum studies. So, um, so I got a really good sort of background on a lot of different things. But when I graduated, the whole goal uh, to get through my undergrad was so that I could go to um, uh, library school right, in information science, get a master's in information oh, wow. science so I could be an archivist. And wow. it turned out to work out really well. My, I ended up taking uh, the cultural studies um, avenue because I thought, oh, well, this will be interesting to me. And it w- I get to watch a lot of films and read a lot of great lit. And, and I'm really, really into all of this stuff. Not really realizing that that probably would take over um, my life. And it helped with my master's, definitely. Mm-hmm. But um, it helped a lot more with my sort of freelance life, which is uh, the stuff I do with TV movies and horror movies in general. It, it just, um, it opened up so many doors for me. And um, so it's like, it's interesting because I have two careers that are sort of similar, but they're also very different. So it, I'm an archivist by day, mm-hmm. and I do a lot of um, really great things as an archivist um currently i'm working on abby hoffman's papers at the archive i work at and it's been amazing um i just worked on wayne barrett's papers but then at night i'm doing um tv movies that's fantastic yeah Yeah. and so like you have i have to split my brain into two different (laughs) paths to to accumulate all of that stuff in my head to make it work on both kinds of careers you know what i mean that's fantastic i mean one of the things i love about listening to your show is I can see your brain at work on the show. In other words, you, you, the way you respond, the way you watch um, movies is with great love and enthusiasm. Like, example was Trapper John M.D. I was listening to you, Trapcast, right? And <laughs> yes. I listen, I'm thinking, you know, this is actually the way that you should cover a TV series. If you're going to cover a TV series, this is the right, uh-huh. way, to, this is the right way to do it. I, you see, the thing I don't, this is a pet peeve of mine, is I don't really want to get into the whole discussion of what's popular or what's high art or low art or any of that. I'm not really so interested in that. The thing, my big pet peeve is when things aren't taken seriously and they're yeah. not and they're not taken like people pay attention to what's in the text. People write about things and talk about, especially movies, and they don't they talk about things that aren't in the film, extraneous things. And what I like about you is you actually deal with what's in the film. You know who's in it, 
how's it done? You know, it's kind of it's kind of faithful to what's going on. You yeah, know, I mean, there's so many different ways to look at to look at film. As a matter of fact, I was just at a conference and we were talking about the death of the artist because two people had done um, papers on Mad Max. Uh-huh. Uh, Fury Road, yep. and I I had seen Mad Max once. I wasn't that familiar with it, but it was it was a pretty interesting panel, especially because one of them was I don't know what they were doing, but the other one was really interesting. And so they were, uh, but one of them was clearly following in the death of the artist, where that they believed that basically whatever uh, the filmmaker's intent was is how you are to watch the film. They believed they didn't believe in the death of the artist. I should say they uh-huh. believed in in that. The filmmaker said this in an interview, therefore this is what mm. is happening in the film. And the other person sort of believed in the death of the artist in that his paper went beyond uh, the film itself and actually what would have happened after the credits, basically, which was fascinating. Mm. And there's and you, either way is fine. Yeah. Everybody has their own way of watching movies and they experience films differently and whatever. But um, and, and so you're never quite sure which approach is right for you or for your audience. But, um, I think, I think I, I probably do a little bit of both. I think it's important to know what the filmmakers are trying to do, but also when I'm watching something like Trapper John, uh, so the thing I said about it in the first episode, and I know it's Trapper John, right. And I I know people are like, what, but but like, it's also a metaphor for facing death, right? It's, it's a, it's a way to make death seem easier to look at because they do it in such a comfortable, almost light way. Well, that's but, kind of, yeah, that's kind of almost the point of an aesthetic object like that, right? If you think about well, it, like that's why it was made. And so I guess what I would say is that that's actually in the text. So actually the point of that show is what you, I mean, that's not the only point, but I'm sure. saying that that's actually the point of the thing. And so if somebody were to watch that and miss that, they actually wouldn't be able to appreciate Trapper John. Sure. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of no, like, I see what you're yeah, saying. Yeah. That's kind of, so I think my approach is more phenomenological. It's mainly mm-hmm. it's the experience of watching the thing is what's ultimately important. I yeah, think, yeah. And, and I think for me, it's autobiographical too because mm-hmm. it's like I see so much of myself in so many different characters and setups and things like that. And so, like, I watch a lot of soap operas. Mm-hmm. And the thing about soap operas is, like, the craziest thing could be happening, but somebody will say something and I'll instantly relate to it. And like, so for instance, I was watching, this is going to be really revealing, but I was watching, um, Young and the Restless the other day and, uh, this character had sort of bifurcated because he was really upset about this other character coming back from the dead as they always do. And he had sort of like started blacking out. And when he was blacked out, he was doing these terrible things. Wow. And so he was in therapy. So that's a crazy story, right? Who, who really deals with that? But he's sitting in the therapist's office, and the therapist is talking about his whole history of the character on the show. And she says, I have to ask you, Billy, do you even like yourself? And I was like, whoa. And I I stopped, and I I sat down, and I watched him talk about his self-esteem and what he does to destroy his life. And I thought, I've had moments like this myself, you know what I mean? And so, like... So, like, what I'm saying is, like, uh, when I watch a lot of these shows and a lot of these movies, there, there's always some nugget of wisdom in there where I see something I've done or said or feel being laid out for me in a way that um, is maybe cathartic or it helps me understand myself better or it shows me that the options that I had and why I did what I did. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're almost like learning experiences, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And that's actually the theme of my whole show, Journey of an Esthete. Because the whole point of my show is that human beings and civilization 
create works of art to actually figure out what they're doing right. um, and sort of understand themselves. And I mean that in the, mo- in the broadest sense. I don't mean just psychology or just therapy. I mean, I mean, you could take that as far as you want to cosmically, you know, in terms of um, figuring it out. And there's a lot of different ways of doing that. And that's probably the function of genre itself. Different genres do that. Yes. I think different genres deal with different aspects of reality. Um, oh, for sure. And yeah. you may have some ideas about that. I'd be curious because I don't know. Because I know you thought, well, you know. Well, I love slasher films, and so maybe that's a good entry point. So yeah. slasher films, um, also speaking of blueprints, uh, they've been written about a lot. Uh, Vera Dika wrote a book called Games of Terror, which came out before Men, Women, and Chainsaws, and which I prefer mm-hmm. over Men, Women, and Chainsaws. But she wrote yeah. about the basic structure of the slasher film, which I think then they called maybe the splatter movie or something. They didn't yeah. have the slasher title yet, and that's how old it is. Yeah. And, um, and she's like, well, basically there's a trauma that happens at the beginning of the film. And somebody experiences the trauma, right? And then something happens uh, to make them remember the trauma years later, like time passes. Uh-huh. And and then that sort of sets them off on their killing spree. And there's other stuff in that structure, but those are the points I remember that are important here. Uh-huh. And so, like, all, almost all slasher films has that sort of structure to it. Um, some don't, but most of them do. And... So, like, when I watch something, a good example of something is, like, Prom Night. Mm. Prom Night is about a kid who witnesses the death of his twin sister. And then on the night of her first prom, he goes crazy, right? And he kills everybody. And so, but it's based off of grief and loss. And almost Mm -hmm. every slasher film is actually rooted in grief and loss. And so I've always loved slasher films, but after my parents died, you know, that became, like, a big thing I got in touch with when I would rewatch these movies. Uh, a really good example of it is something which um, it gets maligned all the time. It's called The Toolbox Murders. Uh-huh. It came out in 1979, 1980, and it stars Cameron Mitchell, and it's yeah. about... Um, well, the first half hour is really about a guy who just went to an apartment building, basically killing a bunch of women who are like in various states of undress and mm. whatever. It's it's um, notorious. But the mm. second and third act are about the killer dealing. He kidnaps this girl from the apartment building and he holds her hostage at his house and they have conversations for yeah. like 60 minutes. And he talks a lot about losing his daughter. Yeah. And it's so moving. And it was oh, written yeah. by two women, by the way, and a yep. man. And it's very sensitive in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And I know when I say that, if anybody's seen the toolbox murders, I either get the eye roll or they just can't believe I'm thinking this, but that's a really good movie about what it's like to lose somebody you love there. It yeah. reaches, um, depths of emotion in a way that I don't think any other film that I've seen has. And so I'm, I feel really close to that film and I actually can't watch it all the time because it's painful. For well, me. it's, um, I, you're not going to ever get, you can't see me, but I'm certainly not rolling my eyes. I mean, a film like that, <laughs> no, a film like that is actually, I would be the first to say, come on my show, talk about toolbox murders, talk about last house on the left. Um, these are important, important things. Um, yeah, that's a, another good example of a film that's about losing your daughter and what it does to you. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it, it it's so visceral, the reaction of the death of their daughter. That, mm. it, But that's coming from a very real place of sadness and grief and not knowing what to do with that tragedy. You know what I mean? And so, like, mm. so like all those movies do that to different levels of success. Mm. But, like... But, like, the grittier ones sometimes really go places that, like, are beyond what you think they're doing. Yeah, they all, they definitely do. I mean, certainly artistically, they're, uh, 
Yeah. I mean, toolbox murders is, of course, a, a really a really good point. Um, I don't want to change. I mean, we're in horror and, and slasher. I don't want to change. Of course, okay. course, I want to go deep in there. Yeah, I could go deep in there, but I, but <laughs> I want to mention something before I forget it. You got me into watching Here We Go again. Thank you. Oh, because, <laughs> you're welcome. No, yeah, that just was because a great of your, no, not only that, but actually, here's a great made-for-TV movie. Um, sensitive, passionate man. So good. Angie Dickinson and isn't that is that not the best movie about a marriage or one of the best made-for-TV movies? It's you know marriage? what? It's interesting because I just did the commentary for uh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which came out the Warner Archive, and. Um, and that was directed by John Newland, mm-hmm. who did A Sensitive, Passionate Man. Yep. And he did three movies with Angie Dickinson, which I talk about in the commentary, oh, I got um, that are all I domestic dramas. Mm-hmm. And they're all about the disintegration of a marriage. And they're all in their own way. I think A Sensitive, Passionate Man is the most fully realized of the three. Mm-hmm. But they're all doing something really interesting with um, couples. Mm-hmm. And uh, and very sensitive. Um and John Newland did these monster movies, right? And mm-hmm. what he also did, Crawl Space from 1972, which is its own sort of thing about family. But, like, it's – he produced those as well. So he was uh, – you know, a lot of TV movie directors, they are sort of journeymen and they get hired to do things, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like John Newland Moss is like, I really want to make a woman in prison movie. It's probably like somebody called him and said, hey – do you want to make a woman in prison movie? And he's like, yeah, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. But like John Newland was kind of a little, he had a little empire going there. And mm-hmm. so he, Factor Newland was the name of the production company he had with the guy whose mm-hmm. first name I can't remember, but it's obviously Factor is his last name. And then they changed it, Factor died. And anyway, he kept the production company going. And he he sought out these types of domestic dramas yeah. to make. And I guess because he felt really close to them. And mm-hmm. he was really good at it. He did one called The Suicide's Wife, mm-hmm. which is, um, it's got some flaws, but what it's doing at the core of dealing with what happens when your spouse commits suicide is very harrowing and real and it, and bold because the, without being too spoilery, I think the film is ultimately saying you're never going to know why he did it. And, and it doesn't try to tie it up into like a little nice bow. And, and it's, it's really moving and it stuck with me and it kind of haunted me. I can't wait for you to finally watch it in Strangers. When you watch it, we can, we can talk. Okay, <laughs> for sure. Uh, what about going from drama to comedy and Guide to the Married Woman as a film about a marriage? Um, now, that one I don't think I've seen. I have seen Playmates. I could maybe talk about that. Yeah. Um, or uh, Every Man Needs One, which I guess they're not married in that. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, they're, they're, it's like we said about the basic structure about dealing with the family and with yeah. domesticity, right. um, just with different um, genres. But almost every TV movie from that era is doing something with the family um, and something with the domestic space. Uh, but I'm, I'm unfort- I feel really bad because you're going to say a bunch of movies I haven't seen. And I'm going to sound like a moron to people. But, <laughs> but there's 5,000 TV movies. You know, yeah, it's you impossible see to see all. all of them. It's impossible to see and all of them. I, You've, I'm trying. You've seen more than than I have, um, and you've seen more than most people, and you you talk about them with intelligence, and you know, like I said, and I'm I'm appreciative of that. Thank um, you. Is there anything else? I know that I have down here uh, mentioned Zalman King. Oh, <laughs> I love Zalman King. Yeah. I love Zalman King's direct-to-video stuff. Like his theatrical stuff is whatever. Like Wild Orchid. So Wild Orchid Two. That stuff's good. Wild Orchid 2 is better than Wild Orchid 1. 
Yes. And clearly, Red Shoe Diaries is better than any of his feature films, right? Red Shoe Diaries, the pilot in particular, yeah. is one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. And I recommended it to somebody, and they said they couldn't finish it because it was so goofy. And I, I still don't understand what they mean. But, like, so I know it's kind of like um, I hesitantly recommend it to people. But, it, again, it's about grief and loss, right? Because it's about a woman. It starts off with the, with a woman already dead. Mm. And her boyfriend, played by David Duchovny, is going through her stuff and he finds a pair of red shoes in a diary and he starts reading it and he finds out about an yeah. affair she had. And, um, ultimately her love of these two men is what led her to commit suicide. Mm. And it's beautifully done. Mm -hmm. Um, the, there is maybe one minute of nudity total in it. Like I think Zalma King gets known for being sort of like the softcore porn master mm. and it's sexy and there's sexuality throughout it, yeah. but it's not really like tawdry at all. And it's, and it's really based in this girl's, like, emotional state of genuinely loving two men. And what do you do when that happens, yeah. right? And they both speak to different sides of her. And so it's so well done. It's so well done. And the, and the series itself um, didn't necessarily go to those depths emotionally. But visually, um, it was, it was uh, sexy cinema for women. You know, it's erotica yeah. for women. It was made for us. And... Um, and they did a really good job at it. I really yeah. enjoyed the Red Shoe Diaries. Well, I'm a big believer in, in in those films, and I and I and I sort of think that they um they you know I don't I don't um yeah so I think people should talk about them and write about them and and celebrate them. Yeah, they're very good because they're good um, and they are erotic. I mean, I think not just I think they're erotic for everybody, not just women, but. Yeah, well, you're probably I, right, but I mean, yeah. I guess like uh, you know, do you you might remember the '90s Skin and Max era? Yeah. And while those were really fun, they weren't very sexy, and I think men were more in tune to them in terms of the sexual content because it was just naked women everywhere. Right. But like in terms of like eroticism, you know, Red Shoe Diaries, I guess, spoke to me. So I always think of it, yeah. I, I guess, as female centric. Absolutely, but also, do you think? What do you think about Zaman Kane? His acting chops. There's some connection there, right? Oh, with his so with good. his ability to act, and his there's got to be some connection there. His directing ability and his acting ability, you know, and producing. Well, both. I mean, I guess yeah. it's interesting because, like, when I don't know that much about directing per se, but you know, there are directors who sometimes call themselves actors, directors, and other directors who are better with set pieces and things like that. And maybe being an actor, such as Zaman Kane was helped him maybe come to the emotional core of a story mm -hmm. in a different way than somebody who never acted would do it. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And he was a really good actor. Now, I haven't seen a lot of his stuff, and I hate mm -hmm. to admit it, but I've never seen Blue Sunshine, which I know he's in. Mm -hmm. But it, it, you talk about the Harry O pilot. Mm -hmm. That is a really good performance. Yep. <laughs> he was really, really creepy in that and really wonderful. And, um, and he's a really good actor. And, you know, I never think of him as an actor. I always know him as, like, the guy who made, you know, Wild Oak and Red Shoe Diaries. Yeah. But, yeah, he has a pretty decent resume. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I sort of feel that you're doing archival work in your podcast, aren't you, in a way? Yeah, I mean, my blog and my podcast are trying to sort of um, provide some sort of background to these films, like some sort of production history or something about them to make them sort of keep their legacy alive, uh -huh. I guess, which is all archiving is basically. Uh -huh. um, and so, yeah, I mean, I would love it. I would love to cover every TV movie that's ever been made. That's never going to happen. But uh -huh. like, 
so many have been forgotten about. And so when I started my blog and stuff, of course, I was like, oh, I'm going to do Bad Ronald, and I, which is a great film, don't get me wrong. And I'm going to do Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, and I'm going to do... But then there's so many of these little movies uh-huh. that were seen by millions of people, but nobody ever talks about anymore, which is because they're not really accessible or whatever. And so um, I started going deep diving more. And so um, I try to do... I mean, I like to write about the big movies too, but I really, really like when I get a chance to shine a spotlight on something more obscure, like this one we just did for Death Car on the Freeway. Like, I, uh, without giving too much away, I wasn't the biggest fan of The Gladiator. I didn't hate it. It's good. But, like, that's a pretty rare movie, even though Abel Fur made it. You never hear people talking about it, you know? And so it was a good opportunity for me and Dan to um, talk about something kind of rare that people might be interested in. I want to ask a practical question about how you how you prepare for a show, because I know you you get a certain atmosphere with Dan on uh, when you're recording a, a show and you talk about the movie. What's up? What's that process like in terms of when you watch a film or how or what the? Do you have like a set outline or do you? Uh, mm-hmm. what? No, I I actually am really bad about taking notes and stuff. I usually um, watch the movie once, sometimes twice, depending. I have a really good brain for TV movies, so mm-hmm. I don't necessarily feel like I need to watch something several times to understand it although I know that helps you know a lot of film writing and and I have done it but um especially for commentaries that really helps but when I'm doing that podcast I like to just sit down and sort of ingest the movie as is and then I sit down and I go into the archives of variety and I start to try to find production history information and then I usually just go on IMDb and I start clicking on names and stuff and then I see what strikes me and um, if there are themes that come out in uh, something that I'm watching, then I go through, like, um, I have, because I work at a college, I have a lot of access to, like, film theory and cultural theory essays and things like that. So I will look up topics that um, were interesting to me, and I'll see if I can inject some sort of film theory or cultural theory into the conversation. And then I just kind of, like, um, I have a, a Google Doc, and then I usually just start with the title and then I write down the original air date, mm-hmm. the, what network it ran on and what the rating was, if I can find that. And then, and then I just start to just sort of vomit out my notes onto it. And then the day we record, I usually reorganize them so that they're fresh in my brain. And so I go through them and then I see where they would go best when I do the background. But mostly a lot of it just comes up in the conversation itself because I, I Dan very seldom tells me what he thinks of a movie before before we record or what he saw in it. So when we're talking, none of that's pre-planned, which maybe you can tell, but like um, he sits down and, and he just starts talking about something. And then usually that will spark something in me. And half the time my notes are just there and I don't even refer to them. And um, he's very into his notes. I don't know if you noticed that, but he likes to hit on everything he makes a note about. And so, which is good because that often sparks conversation. But like when we did the night terror thing, we were talking about second wave feminism and he had some problems with the film. If I remember, he liked it a lot, but uh, he said something about how the movie, the impetus for her to even get across the desert was to go see her son. Uh And cause he was in the hospital. And so when her, you know, she was driving across the desert to get there And he said, you know, I kind of even forgot that she even had a kid. It just became about her on the run. And without him even realizing he was saying that, I said, here is the core of this film because we're looking at a woman who's not just a mother anymore, Mm. right? 
she's starting to identify, we're identifying her as other things. And mm-hmm. that's the whole point of feminism is that people mm-hmm. just don't want the identity of this, oh, I'm a housewife. Not that there's anything wrong with that. You can choose yeah, that. Absolutely. You can choose to be a mother and a housewife, but a lot of women want it to be other things mm-hmm. too. Right. And so that's what she's doing in this film. And so him just saying that actually like embraced all of the conversation we had prior to that. Interesting. And then we were able to branch off of that. And so like, so like having the partner there and my friend Nate, who's on as many podcasts as he can get on, having them there to have the conversation really kind of almost takes the place of even needing to take notes on my end, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's really, I listened to that show and, and, um, I think when you're talking about a movie that good, it's, you know what, I just, uh, for the first time, read Elaine Rapping's book. Mm-hmm. I came to it kind of late, I think, because it was out of print for many years, and I, yeah. when it came out. So I had read Carol Clover's Men, Women, and Chainsaws when it first came out, and actually I read it for an actual class I had, a mm. humanities course, where we, that was one of our texts back in the late 80s, believe it or not. So I had encountered, encountered those ideas about the final girl... Yeah. And genre all the way back then. But I somehow had missed, missed Elaine Rapping's book on TV movies. Oh, no. Oh, on TV. Yeah, that yeah. came out in the early 90s. Early 90s. But I read it for the first time this year. So that's fresh, that's fresh in my mind. Yeah, it's a really good book. It's heavy because she's talking about like the Frankfurt School of whatever, you know, like it goes into all these like Benjamin, like all these theorists that I remember learning about in school. But but the way she applies the theories in the second half of the book Uh is so just cracks open your brain in so many different ways because she took you're talking about like high culture and low culture and how that just it really doesn't exist anymore. But like at the time she wrote the book, TV movies, um, you know, we're considered low culture. So yeah. she's taking high culture film theory and applying it to My Mother's Secret Life with Lonnie Anderson, yeah. which is a great film, by the way. It's a and, wonderful film. And, and she's doing all this heavy film theory in it. Yeah. And that's such an inspiration for me because, like, nobody in the... When she wrote that book in the 90s, I'm sure a lot of her peers were like, oh, you're joking, Elaine. Nobody watches TV movies like that. You can't apply that kind of film theory to that. That's for Scorsese or that's for this. And she's like, you know what? No, I see it in this. And she did it. And she did it in a way that no other author has ever done it since. You know, it was amazing. It was groundbreaking. Yeah. And that that, speaking of which, uh, remind the listener, what is that movie that they should watch with Lonnie Anderson? Oh, it's called My Mother's Secret Life. My Mother's Secret Life. Fantastic movie, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, really fun, and it's, um, you know, she plays a prostitute whose teenage daughter shows up on her doorstep one day, and I met the actress who plays her daughter, Amanda Weiss, um, a few wow. years ago, and we were talking about the movie, and she said Lonnie Anderson was amazing, but um, she said to me, she said, you know, nobody ever asks me about my TV movies, ever. Makes me and, so angry. Yeah, it well, makes it's me so interesting because, because I, again, it's that attitude that Elaine Rapping was dealing with way back then. Yes. Yeah, and I interviewed Lance Guest recently for my blog, and he actually said to me, he said, you can ask me any question you want. He said, because when I get contacted, it's always about Halloween 2, Jaws 4, and The Last Starfighter. He said, I don't think anybody's ever asked me about my after-school specials, (laughs) you know? And I was like, that's what I want to talk to you about, and your TV movies. And um, and he uh, he gave me these really long answers, and he kept saying, nobody's ever asked me these questions before, and it made me feel really good. Have you read Nonny Anderson's memoir, My Life in High Heels? No, I haven't. Is it amazing? It's wonderful. Yeah, I have a copy of that. Yeah, she's really cool. Um, so, TV, movies, so what comes to your mind if you were, were going to talk to somebody that's not an initiate and try to spread the gospel? What, what movies, titles would, would um, 
come up into your consciousness? Would you just... You know, that's so interesting because I should be I should be recommending the classics because I don't know anybody who's seen Duel who thinks it's a bad film because it's not. It's perfect. But the movies I like... Mm-hmm. Um, like, my all-time favorite TV movie is This House Possessed, mm. uh, which came out in 1981 and stars Parker Stevenson and Lisa Eilbacher. And um, it's just a haunted house movie. It's not just a haunted house movie, but that's how I watched it for years. But mm. it's... Um, it's good because it's something I talk about a lot with TV movies. One of the things that I, so we've been talking about all this subtext that's in them and, and how they speak to different things at different times and on different levels, but also they're also kind of comfort blankets. So there's something about letting the movie do the driving for you sometimes. Mm-hmm. And this house possesses a movie that I go to time and time again, because it makes me feel good to watch it because I love Parker Stevenson and because it's a good movie mm. and it's stylish and it's fun. And, um, and it's, it just goes from point A to point B without a lot of uh, stuff happening to distract you from it. And it's wonderful. And so I think just as a straight up kind of fun horror movie, that's, the movie that I, I like to introduce people to, I've gotten mixed responses to it. Yeah. Um, but then I'll start to talk about movies like, um, see, and I just go back to my topic. Dark Knight of the Scarecrow is a movie I always recommend to people because it's timeless and because it is as good as anything that played in the theater in 1982, yep. the year it came out. Um, Don't Go to Sleep is another yeah. pretty good one with Valerie Harper okay. and Dennis Weaver um, that you can take, speaking of subtext and grief and loss and all that stuff, that movie is doing so many things. Um, that's amazing and wonderful and groundbreaking and unlike anything else and, and raw and intense and like, and it's also a really good ghost movie, um, mm-hmm. a haunted house story. And so that's a good one. Um, another one I really like is called fantasies with Suzanne Plachette. Ah, um, yeah. I love which, that one. And that's actually, yeah. that's actually one I watched last week. Oh, partly in okay. preparation for this show. Are we watching? Then, so, yeah. So let's. Do you want to? I can talk freely about fantasies, and, and it's yeah. a very important film because you were talking about how the '80s was kind of its own aesthetic. But that movie is really responding to the popularity of soap operas. Yep. And and it's it's also speaking to the popularity of slashers. And I just wrote an essay um, for Nicholas uh, Winning Reference website about soap operas and horror movies and how they're kind of the same thing. And, um, and fantasies was part of it, just a small part, but, um, that's a very meta movie because Mm -hmm. it's about a woman, right. Who creates a nighttime soap opera and somebody doesn't like the soap. And so they start killing off the cast members, but the soap opera actors are played by real life soap actors. That's right. Right. And, and so it's, it's, it's very meta in a way and it's blurring. And also you remember the ending and I don't want to give it away for people who haven't seen it, but you know, that last camera shot Mm. is ridiculous. It's so postmodern. Like I, when I saw it when I was 11, I didn't know what I was looking at. I didn't really understand how intelligent the film was. And I actually screened that movie here in Austin um, a couple of years ago at the Austin Film Society. That's good. Um, yeah, it was awesome. And I had a really great time showing that to people. And everybody loved it because also it's got a very strong woman in it, right? So it's speaking to second wave feminism. So Suzanne Plachette creates mm-hmm. a nighttime soap. She's um, her ex-husband, you know, her, the the back and forth they have the banter between the two is really amazing um and she's very independent and that's what makes the killer so upset because he wants this real traditional kind of like life and she's not living that life and proudly and it upsets him and so like so it's doing all these different things the the movie announces its theme you know in the very beginning when she's speaking to a a class right graduating that's right 
And, you know, already there's some students that are, I think, throwing a lot of crap at her. You know, yes. I think, you know, kind of just being bratty and just almost as if she hasn't achieved anything or, you know, it's just kind of, it's kind of, so it sets up, you know, it's a very well-written film, very well-written film. Yeah, it um, is. That was David Levinson. Yeah, good, really good writer. Wow. Yeah. Um, so Suzanne Blachette also makes me think of Help Wanted Male. Oh, so good. With Bert Condy. And, jo- and yeah. Jill Gerard. Talk about that film for, for, for the well, little bit. Well, briefly, I will tell you, I'm pretty sure that the same fantasies and Help Wanted Mail came out the same year. And I think they both ended up in the top 10 uh, highest rated TV movies of that season. Mm-hmm. Help Wanted Mail is also, so Suzanne Pochette is great at playing really independent, autonomous characters. And, and, um, and she runs a magazine. She's mm-hmm. like a, you know, a businesswoman. And she uh, decides she wants to have a child, but her boyfriend is Burt Conby. And he doesn't, which is yes. every woman's dream, right? You know it. And she does. he does not into it. And he, he's this really interesting kind of guy because he's so laid back about everything, even though right. he's got all this pressure on him about this family she wants to have. Oh, yeah. So she decides, I think she's going to find, like, the perfect, like, specimen to have a child with. And it ends up being this guy. I think he works at the newspaper um, or at the magazine and is Gil Gerard. Yep. And uh, through the uh, journey of her deciding to have a baby, they fall in love. Mm. And it's a comedy, yep. and um, it's really fun. Um, we're seeing, particularly for Bert Combe, he's so good in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really fun. It's light, but it's dealing with a lot of issues about women who, like, were running businesses or working and trying to balance a family life in there or even wondering if they should have a family life, right? Mm-hmm. Like, where does the child fit into what these other dreams that I have? And so it's kind of tackling that mm-hmm. as well, and um, but in a very lighthearted way. But it's, it's a really good movie. I like it quite a bit. Well, that makes me think of an interview with Paul Schrader from 79 um, where he says that I think that one of the functions of a movie is to help people deal with new things in society. Yes. In a way. So he says the reason why he was making hardcore is that, you know, there's this new thing called adult entertainment. And so he thought he had to make a movie to help people sort out their feelings about it. I mean, that's what he oh, stated in the interview. Of course, that's totally separate from the quality of that film or whether it delivers in that score. That's a sense that those are all separate, separate matters. Right. But he was, I think probably he wasn't thinking that differently than probably a TV producer, you know, sure. de- dealing with any topic, right? In, in a way, if you think about it. Well, I think, yeah. I guess the whole point of film in general, whether it be cinema or made for TV, is that it's speaking to us on some kind of like a subconscious level. And it is helping us come to terms with things or at least understand that these issues exist on a larger scale or maybe feel us, maybe make us feel less alone. It's a lot about sorting out things and sorting out our feelings. Um, horror films for me is like catharsis. It provides, film provides a lot of different outlets to mm. things. But that's interesting what you say about hardcore and about sorting out your feelings for things because like um, there's a movie that I like to talk about from the early 70s called Maybe I'll Come Home in the Spring mm. which is about a woman trying to figure out if she belongs in the sort of suburban utopia that is not a utopia or in this sort of counterculture that is also she's become really disillusioned with and like, where do I fit in in the world? And that movie came out right at sort of the tail end of the counterculture movement. And, and, and at the time when divorce rates were rising in the suburbs and it was, it's a great film because it's critiquing both very well. 
You know, yeah. it's not saying one is better than the other. Matter of fact, it's saying they're both really flawed. And yeah. what do you do when you feel like you have to belong in one of the? Those are the only two worlds you know of, right? Yeah. So, like, what world am I gonna am I gonna fit into, or am I gonna fit into anything at all? And that film does it really beautifully. It's a wonderful film. I mean, I, what's the yeah. name of the title for our listeners? It's I'll be home in the. What is it? Oh, maybe I'll come home come in the spring. In the spring. I mean, I would tell people watch that back to back with Diary of a Mad Housewife um, Ooh, okay. by Frank and Eleanor Perry. I think they're equally good. It's just that one is more famous and one is, you know. Yeah. But, but it is about, like, so TV movies are definitely about this, like, approaching oh, topics that are fresh and real to us as they're happening, right? So, um, and helping us figure out, like, maybe not figure things out, but understand that they are happening and that we're not alone, you know? It's community. It builds community. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. What are some actors that you really love? You say you have actors from the 70s or from whatever that you just... Um, oh, well, I think yeah. we just rattled off a bunch at the beginning. So Robert Reed would be like my Robert Forrester. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I came to know him better. Like I saw Jackie Brown and then I kind of went backwards with him. Although yeah. I'd seen a lot of his stuff prior. Mm-hmm. Um, just a lot of the actors we've already been talking about. I'm trying to think. You know, I'm really getting into Deborah Raffin and Shelley Hack. I think Shelly Hack is amazing. Underrated. Amazing. Well, that's a whole, that would be, we could do a whole show on, on the later Charlie's Angels, right? Yeah, but, but you know, I kind of feel like, and I talked about this, on, I'm giving away my whole podcast, but like, um, I don't know that I think her season on Charlie's Angels was her best year in acting, but everything she did after that in Death Car, which she did before, are uh-huh. tremendous. And so I've started going and watching, um, she did a movie called Bridesmaids from 1989 that I just watched last week. I love that movie. That, yeah, I'm not, I don't know if I'm a huge fan of the end message of the film, but I think the mm-hmm. acting is really good. It's and really it's good. A, and it's pleasant, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was in a movie called Single Bar, Single Women. That's mm-hmm. really good. She's amazing in that. And she mm-hmm. was in um, Track Down, Looking for the Good Bar Killer. And mm-hmm. she's really good in that. And that's not a great film, but she is mm-hmm. really great in it. And so I'm just kind of like reappraising her career right now because yeah. I was reading, um, and I guess it's kind of a famous story, but I was reading that she was fired from Charlie's Angels by not being notified that the show had been renewed. So what happened was on Valentine's Day, everybody in the cast got like a bouquet of flowers or something and a note saying, hey, the show's been renewed and we're inviting you back. And she didn't get it. Mm. Nobody called her mm. and told her. We're not having you back. They just did this weird sort of passive aggressive thing. Mm. And and that's how she found out. And I read that and I was horrified mm. for her because I was like, why would you treat somebody so poorly mm. that, you know, was on the show? And so I started to think, you know, Shelly Hack's kind of always been treated really badly mm. in terms of her acting career. Um, and is it because she's a bad actress or is it just because... No. She came on after Kate Jackson, and it's so hard to live under that shadow. Mm. What was it? And so I started watching her films again, and I'm like, she's a she's much better than people have given her credit yeah. for. Yeah, it's a, it reminds me of what Dick Van Patten said about Eight Is Enough. What's that? Well, he claimed that no one told him they were canceling. He claimed, oh, no. he claims that he read about it in the trade papers, like in Variety. So can you imagine that you're doing this show and you're working on a show and you have to read about your the cancellation of your own show that the, it just it seems to be so bizarre, right? Well, I so I was at an autograph show a couple years ago with Lee Majors wow. and he was doing the show. I think it was called saving grace mm. and the course Leachman and, um, and somebody said, how do you feel about in the Q and a, they said, how do you feel about the cancel cancellation of your show? <laughs> he said it was canceled. Wow. 
And she's like, yeah. And he's like, I didn't know. And that's how he found out. Oh, wow. Yeah, crazy, right? That must be some weird television thing, right? Some, some... I, yeah, I don't know why. I mean, the whole thing about Shelly Hack was like, I mean, they didn't wouldn't have even had to tell her. Can't they have just called her agent and been like, just tell her we're not having her back? I mean, like they wouldn't have even yeah. had to talk to her. And there was still there were still shows left to shoot, so she had to come mm-hmm. back and do like three more episodes after that. Yeah. And I was like horrified. I was like, if that was me, I would be devastated. How what a horrible way to treat somebody. So, um, and then I sort of like. She became my underdog, and I was like, you know, yeah. I'm gonna go watch all her movies again, and I'm yeah. just gonna see, you know, what's going on here. And I'm like, I'm like, it was just a difficult year for Charlie's Angels. I think the year that followed with Tanya Roberts mm. um, is a better season. Yeah, it is. You know, and speaking of Toolbox Murders, you know, the guy who directed that directed several episodes of the last season of Charlie's Angels, which is why it has such a great look to it. That's right. But um, um, mm-hmm. she just happened. She just kind of fell into a bad year for the show and and it just wasn't right a right fit for her that's all well you know it makes me think about glamour itself as an aesthetics as a style right because there are a lot of uh, tv movies uh, like there's that wonderful tv movie about the beauty pageant the great american oh isn't that a good movie the great american beauty contest is great contest and and that's um you could pair that with smile michael ritchie's smile they're similar so good but that would make a great double feature you should you should show both that i want you amanda reyes to go to the alamo draft house and show a double screen (laughs) of the great american uh beauty pageant and michael ritchie's smile and have i would love to do that yeah the great american beauty contest is a really interesting movie i just rewatched that for the girl most likely to commentary because it's by the same producer Uh and um it's it's a really interesting film and it's a lot of fun too. Yeah, but there is glamour in it, just same as like Seven oh, yeah. Des- Desperate Women, about uh, which is a showcase of, of some big stars at that time. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, glamour um, has always been a big thing on TV. I guess it kind of it vomited itself up in the eighties with Dynasty and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, uh, I I don't know how to word it, but like I'm thinking. It's interesting that so many of these TV movies deal with things that happen in the, the domestic space, yet a lot of the families can be upper middle class or really rich. Uh-huh. Um, you know, like in The Strange Possession of Mrs. Oliver, like she comes from a very rich home. and um, But yet at the same time, it's telling a story about a housewife who's trying to be something else. And so it's kind of interesting. But like, and she's not very glamorous in it, but like... Um, it's appealing, you know, I think people like it. And I think Aaron Spelling, he said, you know, when Aaron, Aaron Spelling was like quietly subversive uh-huh. and political in all of his productions, he was always saying you're doing something on another level, but he also wanted people to come home from work after they've had a rough day and sit oh, down yeah. and escape. Do you want to he talk a little that. bit more about that? Because I think you have insight into that. So, so for, uh, for people that only know, you know, Aaron Spelling's name as a big celebrity or from the tabloids, talk about him as a, you know, a serious producer and thinking, go well, say more. Yeah, and, it's fascinating. I mean, he's famous for Dallas, and not Dallas, I'm sorry, for Dynasty and for Charlie's Angels. And, and as a matter of fact, he was such a big moneymaker for ABC that he used to be called the Aaron Broadcasting Channel, <laughs> like as a nickname because he brought in so many million-dollar TV series to them. Uh-huh. But he was also a TV movie producer, and I think he said he produced something like over 240, million, 240 TV movies um, in his lifetime, like he's executive produced and produced them. And... Uh, his TV, like Charlie's Angels, I guess is a good example of a TV show um, where it's very glamorous and it looks superficial, but it is actually dealing with second wave feminism. And 
it got maligned a lot because it got called Jiggle TV because yeah, the women right. were wearing, wearing skimpy costumes, right. which they are, and they're very beautiful. They're yeah. unlike any other woman in the world. They're very singular in their beauty. Yep. But they're also extremely autonomous, and they don't have love interests. Like, every so often, one will filter in, but they don't stick around, uh-huh. and they don't need them. And mm. and Bosley is taking over the woman's role, right? He is their secretary, That's essentially. Right. And there's only one Bosley episode, and in the Bosley episode, it's like a woman, a damsel in distress story, uh-huh. where the angels have to rescue him. And he, so he gender switched it very beautifully, uh-huh. and he made a show that yes, it did have beautiful women in skimpy costumes, but it also was a little girl. You know what I saw was like these women going off on these crazy adventures and taking care of themselves. Um, and like Kelly Garrett is a prime example of uh-huh. a really well made, drawn TV character from the '70s because she was fearless. She landed planes. There's an episode I remember where. Um, she was going to talk to this guy who had been uh, abusing his girlfriend and she walked into his apartment and she was confronting him and he threatened to beat her up. And she said, what are you going to do to me? What are you going to do? And she called him on it. And I mean, that was pretty fearless because she knew he beat women, you know, and they know how to take care of themselves. And it was great. And, um, and it was empowering as a young girl to see that. And so, yes, it's been nuanced and changed. And now we've kind of dropped that aspect of like, Oh, they have to have low cut dresses or whatever, you know, and, and you know we're in a better place that we may be, but like it was, it was where we started, and it was a good place to start. And I don't want to, I don't want to see that get sort of derailed from what Aaron Spelling was essentially seeking out to do. But his TV movies yeah. could also be very empowering in and of themselves. And so something I like to talk about um, with Aaron Spelling was that he was really sensitive to the plight of the older actor, particularly actress, uh-huh. and. Um, so when you watch stuff like Love Boat, mm. you see a lot of intergenerational love stories. That's right. Also, class systems are tackled in that, too, because That's any right. class could get on that boat somehow. You know what I mean? They had mm-hmm. upper class, lower class. That's right. But also, they had older people and younger people. Mm-hmm. And in his biography, um, which is called A Primetime Life, he talks a lot about how older women in Hollywood are treated, and he mm. hated it. He mm. hated it. And so he was always trying to create roles for older women. So, like, one of his first TV mm. movies is called The House That Would Not Die. Mm. And it's or actually Taste of Evil predates that, and that's Barbara Stanwyck. Right, and Barbara um, Stanwyck. he brought her in mm. to, um, to the TV movie world. She only made, like, three TV movies, mm. but um, he brought her in because he wanted to give her strong, meaty roles and, and embrace her as a really amazing actress is, who yeah, just yeah. happened to be of a certain age. Yeah. And so... Um, Aaron Spelling kind of cheerleaded that more than probably most filmmakers, but there was a lot of TV movies done by different people whose names, of course, I can't remember now, but like Do Not Fold Spindle or Middleite mm. is a great example of showcasing Mildred Natwick, uh, Myrna Loy, mm. um, Helen, oh my God, I'm forgetting her name now, Helen Hughes? Hayes? Hayes, and, um, and Sylvia Sidney. And, Sylvia um, Sidney, wow. And, and, yeah, and putting them in sort of this mystery comedy together, yeah. and and that's just one of several. The uh, the screaming woman, right, with Olivia De Havilland. Yep. Uh, you know, so like there's so many of these TV movies mm-hmm. um, that are showcasing these actors. But Aaron Spelling was very specific to look um, at creating roles for them, and he also did things like I feel like he did. Um, oh my God, what's the one with Lee Majors, where he comes home from the war? Oh goodness, um, it's really early. It's from like 1969. Of course, now I can't remember the name of it, and. Yeah. Um, he produced that, and that's about dealing with what happens when you come home from Vietnam. Mm. And so he took very serious yeah. things that were happening in our culture, and he made sure. movies, and he addressed them. And um, and so his TV movies are very um, 
worthwhile and the word you use a lot, valuable. They're valuable. Yep. They are. And I, and I really love you coming on my show and talking about this stuff because I feel it's like, great. Um, Thank you. I feel like you're one of the few people out there kind of spreading the word about, about these films. Um, I, I do think there's something about the production um, institutional nature of the three networks, uh, ABC, NBC, CBS, that might lend themselves possibly to these things being lost to time or forgotten. Uh, I think so. I don't really understand the rights issue thing Yeah. because I don't know. I feel like part of it might be when TV movies were made, nobody really knew what home video was. Yeah. And so when the contracts were drawn, there wasn't any kind of stipulation for home video yeah. and they don't know how to do that like in terms of rights and also they were co-produced so like universal studios i think co-produced a lot of tv movies with the networks so who knows who has the rights to a home video release if such a thing exists in the contracts and also i think they just don't care yeah well it's the don't There's care not part money. well it's the don't care part that of course upsets me and you know and, and yes so, yeah because it's like well you know we we, we there's, a, there's a kind of arbitrary um hierarchy in society where we hold up these kinds of uh these kinds of cultural objects as being the most important thing, and we and we and these other things are just trash, and we forget about them. Yes, and, and, and yeah, you, that's the thing. You are a an opponent of that in your work, and I really appreciate that. Um, that's that's just one of the many things that I appreciate about what you do, and thank you. And that's one of the main, main not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons I wanted you to come on my show, Journey of an Aesthete, because these are aesthetic objects, and um, and uh, talk about it. That's great. And I love. So, I talk about TV movies anytime. I don't know if you noticed that, but <laughs> absolutely. So, what do you think that we do with pro this uh, Intimate Strangers project? I don't know. Um, give me a little time because yeah. my plate's kind of full right now. Sure. But like, I would love to because I love talking about TV movies, and I think it'd be great. And it's one I haven't seen, yep. and one that you obviously feel very close to. So yep. you would probably teach me things about it. Well, it's not a matter of time because it can be next year. It doesn't have to be tonight or tomorrow morning. So clearly. It doesn't. I'm just saying in the future, long future. Yeah. Well, um, or and you can and then you can come up with the title you want me to see that I haven't seen. Young Love, First Love, and we can. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, because I've never seen that thing. Like that one, yeah. So thank you for being here, Amanda Reyes. And what what are the things that you want people to get? Don't go in the house alone, or don't go. Yeah, I guess I guess my book, Are You in the House Alone? A TV Compendium, would be. The thing, um, if you're interested in TV movies, that's probably the best gateway because there's so many titles in there. And there's some really great essays by some really great writers in there. And um, we tried to cover as much as we could with what we could access. Mm -hmm. um, but otherwise, you could just visit my blog, which is Made for TV Mayhem, which has a bunch of reviews of a bunch of TV movies. Um, mm -hmm. My writing has changed over the years, so please forgive me if you go to the beginning and start reading it because um, it's not that refined yet. Um, and I'm still learning my craft. And also, I have a podcast, uh, which is called The Made for TV Mayhem Show, which uh, I have two co-hosts, one that's intermittent named Nathan Johnson and Dan Budnick, who's my partner in crime. Uh -huh. And we do double features. What we normally try to do is pick a theme, and then if it's possible, I will pick one pretty well-known TV movie and then one pretty rare one. It doesn't always work out that way, but that's kind of the structure of it. Um, and it's a lot of fun. It comes out. We try to do it once a month if we can. We just got back from a hiatus. And inside of there is the Trap Cast, which you can find in the feed for the Made for TV Mayhem show if you're interested in Trapper John. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, I guess just Google me because um, 
I've done so many commentaries that I can't remember exactly what I've done. But I most recently I did Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which came out through Warner Archives, which was a really big deal for me because that's a, one of my childhood favorites. And uh-huh. it's also, and I'm tweaking a second wave feminism and all this stuff. That's a really wonderful film. And I just did a commentary with um, my podcast partners uh, for a movie from 1984 called Amazons, uh-huh. which came out through Kino Lorber. That's an interesting movie because that came out the year that uh, Geraldine Ferraro ran uh, for vice president. And that movie is about basically... Um, um, it's about what the world is like when women decide that they want to take over yeah. basically it's a really interesting film directed by Paul Michael Glazer from Starsky and Hutch um, very stylish um, I guess those are the latest things well, when you, when you mention a title like that I'm tempted to talk for another half hour just about Amazons I'm just gonna, I gotta <laughs> say this is, but we'll have to wait you know because that's a really and Paul Michael Glazer that's a whole other subject Fantastic. Yeah, it is. It, it, um, and it was, I was surprised when I took on the project yeah. exactly how deep and layered that movie was. Um, that's another example of a movie you can watch just as sort of uh, sort of an adventure about like modern day Amazon women are infiltrating the United States or whatever. Or you can look at it it's like a political statement. And, um, and it's fair and it's kind of amazing. Thank you. And uh, all, all good things have come to an end. Oh. So I'm just going to say thank you, but you let me know your convenience. And it's for you, Tattle, Image, and Jerry, if you're using.